0: Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, (laughs) you know, we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we are truly slow walking because this episode is going to be a, I don't know what, an overview, a review, a look back at Cantos 26 and 27 of Inferno. If you don't know where we are... Wow. Go back. Although this is the 169th episode, you can catch up with us at any given moment. If you need a refresher, we are in the eighth of the evil pouches of the Malabolja that make up the vast circle of fraud, the eighth of nine circles of Inferno. We have been in this pouch for quite some time through cantos 26 and 27. We are with the fraudulent counselors, although we've talked about why that's problematic. And this episode of the podcast is not about a passage from Inferno. Rather, what I want to do is compare and contrast Ulysses and Guido da Montefeltro are two speakers in Cantos 26 and 27. Yes, there is a third damned soul here, Diomedes, who never says anything, and we have little clue as to even his reaction to what his partner in crime, Ulysses, has to say. So this episode is a compare and contrast episode of Ulysses and Guido, but inevitably then, it becomes a compare and contrast episode of Cantos 26 through 27. Before we get going and rolling here, let me just say that I wish we were together. I wish we were around a table. I wish we had some coffee, or I wish we had, uh, I don't know, a glass of red wine. (laughs) In my case, I wish we had a bourbon. We were all sharing something to drink, and we could talk about this in a less formal way or if back in the day when i was an academic I would hope that I was standing in front of a blackboard. It's been a long time since I've been an academic. There were still blackboards. Yes, standing in front of a blackboard or a smartboard. And I were able to build onto this with your comments or add more to the comparison and contrast between Ulysses and Guido. But at least I got a cup of tea here and I'm going to set off to make my comparisons between Ulysses. And Guido da Montefeltro from Inferno, Cantos 26 and 27. Let's think way back to the opening of Canto 26. It opens with a denunciation of Florence, how Florence must be so proud of itself for creating such horrible thieves. If we continue then and blip past Ulysses and blip past Guido and go, all the way to the end of canto 27 we have virgil and dante walking on to the ninth of the evil pouches i think this might be an interesting way that dante has set up a structure here it seems as if the prophetic denunciation of florence is actually how do i say this the interpolated material it's what's set into the text and the important point is that the journey continues. That seems to be the truly unifying thematic of comedy. It is what makes comedy, partially makes comedy, a great work. The story of the walk is primary. There are many medieval texts that divert into all kinds of asides. And many of those texts, (laughs) I should say many of them are, but some of those texts are written by Brunetto Latini in which there's all kinds of diversions left and right away from the narrative structure. And it seems as if the diversions themselves take over the text. That is not the case with Inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso. It's also oddly, and we'll explore this more later, particularly in Paradiso, it's not the case with Augustine's Confessions. There, again, the narrative holds together all the digressions. And I think that we can see this here in 26 and 27 by the opening denunciation of Florence, but it ending with The Journey Continues. Both Cantos 26 and 27 open with unfinished business. That denunciation of Florence is a piece of what came before it with the thieves. Those thieving Florentines who went through all their metamorphoses, then open out into Canto 26 and the poet's denunciation of Florence. In the same way, Canto 27 starts with unfinished business from 26. Ulysses finishes speaking, and then we pick it up in 27 with Virgil essentially dismissing Ulysses and, assumably, Diomedes with him, dismissing the two of them after the speech. So both cantos open with unfinished business, but 27 does not allow that to happen. In other words, the business of 27 doesn't then lap over into 28. Instead, 28, the canto we're coming into, laps over into the back of 27, thereby giving us this idea that 26 and 27 do come to a stop. They're not lapping over into the next canto. Rather, 27 stops the business with the fraudulent counselors, and then we get our first glimpse of the next pouch. It's this, uh, what do I want to say, break in the rhythm. The action of the canto spills over. The action of the canto spills over, then stops, and we get a look into the next pit. Dante is really cueing us that these two cantos form a unit, and that they should somehow be seen together. One of the ways they can be seen together is their opening similes. Remember the opening of 26. There's that shepherd, that uh, peasant fellow, who's out on the hills. The mosquitoes and the flies are dying away. The fireflies are coming up. He's looking down into the valley where he tends his fields and attends his vineyards. It's extremely pastoral as the fireflies start to come up around him. And if we think about that opening image, then we could think about the same way that 27 opens with an image of the Sicilian bull. Well, not directly opens. Virgil first has to dismiss the flames. But in an analogous way, we have some unfinished business, and then we come to this Simile, this instrument of torture, finely crafted bit of art in which the artisan himself is first burned alive in it. Remember this? You set a fire under this brass bull. It gets really hot. You put a guy inside of it. He burns up. And as he screams, his noise comes out of the mouth of the bull. Think about that shift from extraordinarily pastoral, homey imagery to grotesque, torture. That seems to me to sum up the journey of Inferno. We have gorgeous art about terrible torture. We have beautifully fashioned, crafted poetry that has a very homey, familiar feel to it If you're a Christian and you believe in this notion of the afterlife, and yet at the same time, what we're dealing with is extraordinary torture. The human body, dare I say it? Well, the human soul for sure, but even the human body body in pain. Because after all, the souls suffer as if they were in their bodies. More on that way later in Purgatorio. But for now, let's just leave it there and say something else about those opening similes. The peasant with the fireflies is all about sight. It's about what the shades locked in their tongues of fire look like, those fireflies. The Sicilian bull, the nightmare torture, is all about sound. It's all about the sound that comes out of it. Now, of course, in... Both cases. There are other things to do with these similes, but just think about it. We open with sight, vision, and then we move to sound. And the sound that we move to, the tortured soul inside this brass bull that's on fire, the sound we move to is terrifying. This is alerting us, I think, to say that the appearance Of things is not necessarily the same thing as what they say so we should think about guido and ulysses in this context their appearances as mercenary warlord and as classical hero don't necessarily jive with the tales they tell they themselves in appearance are different from what their stories actually let us know about them let's say one more thing about those opening similes If 26 starts with its opening business with the denunciation of Florence and all that stuff and then moves to the peasant with the fireflies, then we go from this pastoral, comfortable image to an image of bitter regret when Guido cows away muttering and sputtering to himself. That move seems to me very important emotionally from comfy pastoralism To bitter regret. That's kind of the emotional register we're changing over. If we were using music metaphors, we would say that's the key change we come over in these two cantos. We come over something that seems at first very homey and familiar, and we end with this notion of a poor guy locked forever in bitter regret or let's push it even further than that. We open with a peasant who is content to be at home looking at his fields and fireflies etc. At least that's how we open into the pit. 26 again has some business going on before that but how we open first into the pit and we end with Virgil and Dante walking on. So we have a guy contented to be home, and we end with no rest for the pilgrim and his guide. That seems, too, an important linking change inside these cantos. A humble peasant who's happy to be home, but no rest for our pilgrim. Of course, an easy comparison contrast between Ulysses and Guido is one as a classical figure and one is a contemporary figure. Ulysses, the great classical figure that Dante actually doesn't know, as we discussed endlessly, and Guido, a contemporary figure who died only a year and so many months before the alleged timing of the journey of comedy. I think that that's really important to see them, Ulysses as this classical reference sitting there and we need to see guido as a contemporary reference and we need to know something about the way language functions for both of them it's the same both of these figures classical and contemporary can lead you astray with language i think that that is excruciatingly important to what's going on inside this canto it's not that the classical world is better than the contemporary world. Rather, it's that both have the ability to manipulate language in such ways that you are led astray by what they have to say. Remember when Ulysses first arrives on the scene with Diomedes, Virgil says to Dante, don't talk to them. They're going to disdain you because they're Greeks. And so Virgil takes over and asks Ulysses to tell his story. Then, In Canto 27, the same thing doesn't happen by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when Guido arrives on the scene, Virgil dismisses him. You take care of this one. You talk to this one. This one's Italian. And Dante listens to him. And then Dante gives an incredibly erudite history of Romagna, an incredibly poetic chronicle of romagna using heraldic symbolism using family crests all this dense poetic language to tell of the strife in romagna i think we should see that for clearly what it is virgil says that ulysses and the greeks in general perhaps might disdain dante because he's not as learned as they are and yet when it gets his turn to talk It is an extraordinarily erudite, learned, poetic language about the current strife in Romagna. He's not unlearned. There is no reason for Ulysses to disdain him. Perhaps, dare we push it this far, there is no reason for Virgil to guard Dante in any way. After all, he can offer incredibly poetic historical analysis. That might seem a little hard on Virgil, don't mean to be, but it is a strange contrast between the two cantos. I should also say, as another level of contrast, that Ulysses is a monologue, without a doubt, right? Once Ulysses starts to talk, he talks and talks and talks, and we'll talk about this in a minute. He comes up to his climax. It's it's a solid monologue. This is not the truth with Guido da Montefeltro. His is a conversation, it's a dialogue. And in fact, it's a dialogue at first between him and Dante the Pilgrim. And then even inside Guido's big final speech, there is tons of dialogue. We hear from the Pope, we hear from one of the black cherubim, we hear from Minos. There's also the quoted internal dialogue. It is a constant, ongoing back and forth. And I think this is really important between the two of them. Ulysses doesn't allow any other voicing. The only person Ulysses quotes is himself. He tells what he tells his men to rally them forward onto Mount Purgatory. Guido, not so much. Guido is caught in in contemporary life, in the social web, and his conversation both with the pilgrim and with others is all recorded. Guido ends up, as I already said, quoting the Pope, quoting one of the black cherubim, quoting Minos, Even quoting Dante, we talked about this, he lifts a passage from the convivio to explain his own pulling in his sails at the end of his life. He's he's quoting all over the place. It's a giant open conversation, and I think this points out a big difference between the two of them. Ulysses is clearly a narcissist. He talks all about himself, and he only quotes himself, as opposed to Guido, the contemporary figure who is caught in a social nexus full of competing voices, all of which compete for space inside his monologue. This strikes me as an incredibly important contrast between the two of them. Maybe it is that classical figures can afford to speak on their own without having to worry about the social nexus, whereas contemporary figures, they're caught in the web of human relations. Of course, we should say right up front that one of the shocking things about Canto 26 is that Ulysses speaks. Dante, as we discussed, doesn't know anything about Ulysses except from secondhand sources. He doesn't know Ulysses from Homer, and so he gives voice to Ulysses. In the same way, Dante gives voice to Guido, but that's not the shocking bit in Guido's speech. If we are shocked that Ulysses speaks, we should be just as shocked that Pope Boniface VIII speaks in Guido's speech. Now, we can say this is a reported conversation. Nonetheless, given that Boniface VIII is Dante's great nemesis, this is his speech in comedy. This is when he gets to step forward and give his lines and his oily, nasty lines about, I hold the keys to the kingdom that Jesus gave Peter. So listen, I can forgive you in advance. He can abuse his power in the shocking way that it is that Ulysses speaks. It should be, it's hard for us moderns to see it, but we should see it as just as shocking that boniface actually steps up and speaks in the middle of course of guido's speech both of these figures come up later ulysses is going to come up very subtly in purgatorio but he is going to come up in purgatorio and then he's going to come up for sure in paradiso i already read you the passage during our episodes on ulysses guido definitely comes back up in Purgatorio. It'll come up early on in Purgatorio. So both of these figures are anticipating Purgatorio. We wouldn't know that from Guido's speech. We only know that in retrospect, but now since I read the comedy, I can tell you both of them are anticipating Purgatorio and both of them are forward leaning in the poem. Not every figure we cross is forward leaning. Francesca, well, there's ways we can claim when we get up among the lustful in Purgatorio, and then especially in the first rung of Paradiso, we can claim that Francesca is sitting back there a bit, not in the same way that Ulysses and Guido are actually quite present in the text. Both of these figures are definitely part of the future story of comedy, and that's important to see them as such linked in this pit. Of course, Ulysses has given us the first real glimpse of the journey ahead. Ulysses sees Mount Purgatory. And while we've only caught a glimpse of this giant mountain, that is where we're headed. We're headed there another way, not on the sea, as Ulysses does. But nonetheless, we're headed there and we got our first glimpse of the journey ahead. This is in direct contrast to Guido. Guido's life is a dead-end journey. It is a dead end to regret. And as he mm, slinks away, muttering and flickering to himself, we can see that his whole life is nothing but a dead end. While Ulysses' speech drives us on toward what is ahead of us, purgatory itself, Guido's speech brings us to a dead halt. Another way these figures can be contrasted is that Ulysses is a great storyteller. He's a modern storyteller. He tells a almost linear tale of his life and finally his death. And it comes slowly to this great climax. We'll talk about this in a minute. But it comes slowly to this great climax. It's very unified. It's very coherent. Ulysses is a great storyteller, a modern storyteller. Guido, a terrible storyteller. He tells the end. He backs up. He starts again. He obfuscates. He pulls things into fine bits that don't quite make total sense. He may, in fact, make up his own death to somehow justify himself. Although I tend to buy the story of his death and the black cherub and St. Francis, but it could be that he's even making that up. He's not a good storyteller. Why? Well, Ulysses doesn't seem to have anything to hide. It's, it's not as if Ulysses is trying to conceal himself from us. In fact, if anything, he's trying to show us how glorious he is. Guido he still feels like he's got a lot to hide. He still feels like he's trying to manage his culpability. Ulysses almost revels in his culpability. He almost seems to be like, hey, I pulled one over on my sailors. I got us to sail around the world. I got to go where no person ever went. And so it ended in our deaths. So be it. But look at how heroic I am. Look at how fabulous I was. Look at how I was able to rally them on in the worst bits of the open Atlantic. That seems to be a grand difference between the two storytellers. I should also note that Ulysses' forgets his family and Guido remembers his. Ulysses just wants to get away from Penelope and his father and his son. The big difference here is that Guido gives that line, when I was still in the flesh and bones my mother gave me. There's this notion that Guido is still connected to a social nexus, as we've said, but even connected to his own family in some fundamental way still here in hell. Ulysses? No way he's not connected to anybody what happened to all those sailors i don't know what what about diomedes who knows ulysses wouldn't give him a moment to speak ulysses is a guy on his own to use the fancy term an isolato like captain ahab a isolated figure who is heroically striking out on his own Not so with Guido. Guido still, even in hell, finds himself connected to his own family. And I think that that tells a lot about their tales and who they are and what their tales focus on. Let's not forget that Ulysses is a literary figure whereas Guido is a historical figure. And I think that difference is very important. It could also have to do with their ability to tell stories. Uh, Ulysses as a literary figure would be a great storyteller. Guido, as a historical figure, would not necessarily be a great storyteller, but I think the real contrast here is that Dante is leading us to see that history and giant historical actions Involve real people. Sure, it's easy to see the tragedy of classical figures because their narratives are so honed and crafted. But history, as we turn to Canto Twenty Seven, Anguido involves real people making real choices, real bad choices that affect other people. And in fact, lead to the death of other people, and I think that that's extraordinarily important in this pouch about how language operates. It's not just literary figures who use language to their own benefit, it's historical figures too. Real people caught in the nexus of history who try to use language to cover their butts and save themselves and end up just as tragic and just as damned as any shining, well-formed literary figure. Both Ulysses and Guido make decisions in old age, and I think this is an important comparison between the two of them. Ulysses, remember, comes back home from Circe, sticks around a bit and says, Ugh, it's not for me, and leaves. And then he says, you know, my fellow sailors were getting old and slow about their work. And he gives the big speech, you know, one last, <laughs> one last ounce of humanity to see where no one has ever seen before. All right, fine. It's all about that one last heroic act in old age. Same thing with Guido. He converts in old age to a Franciscan friar. He, as he says, gets corded, gets the cord put around his waist and becomes a Franciscan friar. In both cases, I think we're supposed to see something about the foolishness of old age. And there may be a way in which the foolishness of old age is tied to fraudulent counsel. There is nothing that besets the old (laughs) people— (laughs) and that's present company included as I age, there's nothing that besets the old people so much as the need to tell younger people what to do. And I think there's a way here in which the foolish actions and choices of old age is being linked to fraudulent counsel in a way that is guaranteed to make me uncomfortable make probably some of you uncomfortable and may make some of the Gen Z and millennial listeners to this podcast very happy. I should also contrast the look of these flames at the ends of their stories. We're told that Ulysses is quiet or still and erect. So he's silent. He's erect at the end of this speech. He's come to this tragic ending, the whirlpool, the ship going down, Mount Purgatory in the offing. I mean, it's just this whole thing. And then it comes out to the next canto and we're told he's silent and erect. We don't know what Diomedes is doing, but there's this no. about him, like Jason walking around uh, the circle, um, not caring he's being whipped by the black demons, or earlier, like Farinata coming up out of his tomb like some kind of Greco-Roman statue. These figures are so noble, and so is Ulysses, so noble, as opposed to Guido, who walks away or floats away, sputtering and flickering, muttering to himself. Those two stances are in direct contrast to each other. And I think there's a point being made here. Your nobility won't save you. You can be as noble as you want, as heroic as you want, but in Dante's conception of how the universe runs, your nobility won't save you. I'm, I'm Man, I'm thinking about this line from Philip Larkin's poem, Obad, oh, one of my favorite poems, but a poem that will shake you to the bottom of your soul, Obad, A-U-B. B-A-D-E, Hymn to the Morning Sun. There's a line in the poem that says, Death is no different whether whined at or withstood. In other words, death is death. It doesn't matter if you complain about it coming or you take some heroic stance toward it. It is irrelevant to what death is. Oh man, that line haunts me on a daily basis. Anyway, I'm thinking about that here because again, we have these two figures whined at or withstood. We have the erect, silent flame and we have the sputtering, flickering flame. And you know what? In the end, It makes no difference to their fate. They have both corrupted language to get what they want, to cover their own actions, to conceal their true motives, and ultimately to lead to the death of others. Ulysses' monologue is a linear crescendo to its climax. I often say to myself that Ulysses is a great precursor to George Eliot because, you know, in Middlemarch, we have this rather linear story of Dorothea Brooke. There are other stories, too, Fred Vinci and others. But hey, we have this rather linear story of Dorothea Brooke, and it all ends at this big climax where she lies on her bedroom floor overnight and renounces her choices in life on the cold floor. Oh, gosh. Well, there's there's a moment of penance for you. That's the same kind of story that Ulysses tells, a modern linear crescendo that leads to its climax. Crescendo is the best word for it, the musical term for increasing loudness, increasing volume. It's a slow crescendo to the whirlpool. That's very different from Guido. Guido's story is a mishmash of low comedy, rage, sadness, poignancy. It shifts tones back and forth. Ulysses doesn't shift tone. His tone is just a rising to the climax. In Guido's story, oh my gosh, you know, I just, then I died and Francis came for me. It just goes from one thing to another, banging back and forth from the low comedy of the demons to his rage Guido's rage it's all over the place a mishmash and I have to confess this to you I have come to respect Guido's position in Inferno much more than I ever did. I used to think that Guido was this sad figure who had to follow Ulysses. I probably said that in some of the episodes of this podcast. And in working through the Guido episodes on my own this time, I have come to love Guido's monologue, love it for its mishmash quality. If Ulysses is Middlemarch, then Guido is the sound and the fury. Guido is is Mrs. Dalloway, a mashup of forms and structures in which pieces of narrative are pushed onto each other. Confession Topaz is pushed onto low medieval street comedy. In the same way in The Sound and the Fury, rage and tragedy is pushed against comedy. It In the same way, you can't get your bearing on the tonality in The Sound and the Fury. You can't get your bearing on the tonality in Guido. And after all, I love The Sound and the Fury. I love Mrs. Dalloway. Guido, in some way, is reminiscent of those novels. A mashup of forms. Both Ulysses and Guido suffer a made-up death. Ulysses Whirlpool and the fight for Guido's soul between one of the black cherubim and St. Francis, both those sequences are made up by Dante. We, yes, as I have pointed out repeatedly, see the actual death, an unusual circumstance in Inferno, the actual death of a person in both cases. But in both cases, the death is made up by Dante. There's no textual evidence that Guido's soul was somehow fought over by by demons and saints. There is certainly no textual evidence to suggest a whirlpool and mount purgatory for Ulysses. These are both solidly out of Dante's imagination. And I think that that's important for what happens here, because not only are they using language adeptly to conceal and reveal what they choose, Dante is engaging his imagination fully with Ulysses and Guido down to making up their stories or at least making up both their deaths. One of the strange comparisons between Ulysses and Guido is this problem of a reaction. Neither Dante nor Virgil react after either speech. So we get this big, heroic speech from Ulysses. What happens? I mean, we see that Virgil has dismissed Ulysses, and I presume Diomedes with him, dismissed them away. But we don't ever get a moment in which we know what the pilgrim is thinking. And in the same way, Guido's speech, we don't know. They just walk on to the next pit. We get no reaction shot from Dante or Virgil. Earlier on in comedy, we got reaction shots. The pilgrim faints from Francesca. Or when the pilgrim asks to see Filippo Argente torn limb from limb among the wrathful in the river Styx, Virgil embraces the pilgrim. And therefore, we know what to think about this, that this is the right reaction to want to see one of the damned torn apart. Here, we're lacking those clues. And so, and this is the big bit, we are driven back into the monologues to try to figure out what it all means. No one turns to us and says, oh, that Ulysses, he was oily, or oh, that Guido, what a jerk. We have to instead ferret it out from the speech itself. We don't even get a fainting reaction (laughs) from the pilgrim as we do with Francesca, we get nothing. It's almost as if we get silence from them. Um, Let me say it this way. We are forced into language to make sense of language, which is the only way you can make sense of fraudulent talk. In the end, you have to get inside of it and listen to it. You can't have Tell you politically what it all means. You can't have commentators tell you. You have to, to figure out that it's fraudulent, get inside of it and notice it. Notice what's really being said. I think this is a masterful stroke on Dante's part to force us into the monologues without offering us a single clue about what we're actually supposed to be thinking. One final bit of comparison and contrast, not really, just one final point I want to make in this episode, and that is something about the 8th Malabolja, the 8th of the evil pits. Here in this 8th pit, we definitely have set personalities. Ulysses and Guido are set forth as fully realized characters, and it's important that we see this come sandwiched between the interchangeable thieves who are constantly metamorphosizing into other things. There is no way we could ever imagine Ulysses or Guido metamorphosizing into anything other than themselves. We're going to come out of this and into the schismatics, and without telling you the whole plot, they are literally being torn apart, sword-bashed apart, I don't know what, hatcheted apart, how's that? They're being ripped apart, the schismatics, because, of course, they ripped other things apart. There is an emphasis here, I think, that... Both the thieves and the schismatics, both pouches are about the body in pain. They have to do with the the physical torture of hell itself, and the body is not stable. But in the eighth malabolga with Ulysses and Guido, the soul is stable. We would say in modern lingo, character is stable, but the soul, to use more Dante's words, is stable it's set it's hard for me not to think of this as platonic as greco roman thought particularly hellenistic thought it's hard for me not to see this body flesh dichotomy here the body is ultimately transformable and ultimately fallible whereas the soul is a much more stable entity that takes on its own characteristics and holds to them even in the afterlife. I realize, of course, these are not real bodies with the thieves, nor are they real bodies coming up with the schismatics, but it is still a focus on the bodily pain, the bodily suffering that they undergo in both of those two pits, as opposed to here, in which we seem to see fully crystallized souls, or to use the modern word, characters. That strikes me as part of on Hellenistic tradition coming out of Plato that Dante is picking up, even if he hasn't read much of Plato, he's picking it up because the Hellenism that invades the West about the body-soul split from Plato eventually makes its way to Christianity. And we see this, that the soul is kind of the formed essence that is stable and the body is always in flux. Surely the truth here between the seventh, eighth, and ninth of the Malabolga. I hope you enjoyed this wild comparison contrast episode between 26 and 27. I wish again we were sitting at a table that we had nice cups of espresso or As I said, a nice bourbon or a glass of wine. And we could be doing more because I know that you could bring out more comparison and contrast between that peasant with the fireflies and the Sicilian bull or between the figures themselves or between their relationships to their own stories. I know there's much more to be said. Connect with me on social media on Twitter under my own name Mark Scarborough check out this episode on my website Mark Scarborough or walkingwithnaughty.com you can even drop a comment there you can even come up with more comparison and contrast and drop it there and other people can see it join in the conversation that would be the best that could ever happen subscribe rate you know all those things you have to do for a podcast do it because I need all the help I can get and come back I've already told you about the schismatics and their divisions and bodily divisions. And, well, how can we miss that? Well, that's up next on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.